the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah of the priests who were in Anatot, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Alas, or ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord stretched out His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, You have seen well. For I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And then the Lord said to me, Out of the north the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of all the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. And I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and have worshipped the works of their own hands." Now gird up your loins and arise, and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, and as a pillar of bronze, and as walls of bronze against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Father, we open this amazing prophecy that you gave to your servant Jeremiah. And we first of all, Lord, want to thank you for bearing up Jeremiah. Thank you for supporting him. Thank you for encouraging him. Thank you, Lord, for pouring your word into him and for speaking through him. For the blessing we receive today, we thank you. For the blessing it has been across 2,600 years. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we might hear and obey. We pray that we might be encouraged and called and drawn. And that we might not be discouraged in these days. We pray, Lord, that we will hear your voice clearly when you offer us a hope and a future. And Holy Spirit, teach us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on August the 10th of this year, Beyonce taped a music video before a unique live audience. She taped a live music video to be released on August 19th before the UN National Assembly. She came out in a long, flowing white dress with the lights on her, and and it was an intense and amazing song. It coincided, the release of the song, the video coincided with the UN's World Humanitarian Day. And so she was singing to be part of that. The song is entitled, I Was Here. You can check it out on YouTube. It's a beautiful song. It's a very powerful, very moving song. An emotional ballad by the veteran songwriter Diane Warren. I don't know if you know who Diane Warren is, but I've followed her songwriting for years. She has written for all kinds of bands and singers. You wouldn't even believe how many hits have been written by this woman. 
The song, I Was Here, I, it was brought to my attention by my daughter, Anna Marie. She said, Dad, you've got to see this. She just loves the song. And, and so I listened to it, and, and Beyonce's voice was soaring, and the video was stunning, and it was very moving. I was here. Here's the first verse in the chorus. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I want to leave my footprints on the sands of time. Know that there was something that meant something that I left behind. When I leave this world, I'll leave no regrets. Leave something to remember so they won't forget I was here. I lived. I loved. I was here. I did. I've done everything that I wanted. And it was more than I thought it would be. I will leave my mark so that everyone will know I was here. Which I think is the perfect song for the UN's World Humanitarian Day. And it sounds great in a song. No doubt the UN National Assembly was on their feet by the final chorus. But let's get real. Should the world last another hundred years, who will remember Beyonce's achievements? Oh, Beyonce Knowles. I mean, she's an amazing singer. She has some 75 million records sold at this point in her life. 31 years old. Of course the world will remember Beyonce in a hundred years. Really? Let me just see a show of hands. And I know some of you will be able to raise your hand, but many probably won't. How many of you remember Patty Page? Okay, see, this is first service. How many of you under the age of 20, under the age of 30, remember Patty Page? Because no one under the age of 30 is here for a service, I think. Perhaps. <laughs> Patty Page, the singing rage. Patty Page passed away January 1st of this year at the age of 85. Patty Page was the most famous female singer of her day. She was the most famous female singer in the 50s. Her uh, singing talent was second only to one. Her greatest hit, second only to one hit in the 50s, White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Patti Page had hits. Her most famous was the Tennessee Waltz, which was intended to be a B-side on a 45 and ended up being her greatest hit. She also sang How Much Is That Doggy in the Window, which I would put on a par with I Was Here. And Patty Page sold over 100 million records. But ask someone in their 20s today who was Patty Page, and most will not know who she was. Most, if they saw the announcement that she just passed away, would go, oh, some, some singer from another time. And the same will be true of Beyonce, I can guarantee it. I was here is only a temporary dream to leave some kind of lasting mark on the world. And everybody probably has felt it. You've probably felt it at some time. Man, I'd like to do something that matters. I'd like to leave some kind of mark, some kind of le- legacy. And others say, I'm too messed up for my life to count or to matter anyway. And it's only really the famous people. But you and I know this. It's true. For all the fame and all the big names in the world today, none are remembered, given a decade or two or three to leave a mark on the world. The problem with trying to leave your mark on the world is it puts the emphasis on the wrong person. To leave your mark on this world is not a lasting thing. Temporal man is soon forgotten. Eternal God is never forgotten. The eternal God will always be remembered. And David had the right perspective. David came out... Laying out probably on a hillside there out on the hills of Bethlehem as a young shepherd boy. And in Psalm 8, we have his words that he wrote down in in song form. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now see, that's things in the right perspective. That, by the way, is one of the reasons I think David is remembered. 
How many of you remember David? Have heard of King David? Go ahead, you can raise your hands if you do. I'm counting on a big show here. Come on, hands up. It's because David gave all the glory to the one who was and who is and who is to come. That's why David's remembered. It's not the affair with Bathsheba. If that was the hallmark of his life, if that was the mark that was left, that would be a story that would be lost to time. The only reason why that story is remembered is because of how David interacted with God after the fact. Because David worshipped God, because he was a man after God's own heart. And I believe Jeremiah would fall right into that category. Jeremiah, like David, wrote his prophecy in an intensely personal way. We know more about Jeremiah than any other prophet. There's more information given, more personal information given. And yet, what's wonderful about the character of Jeremiah is he constantly keeps the focus on God. Ah, Lord God, nothing is too hard for Thee. Ah, Lord God. Ah, Lord God. He will say over and over, turning his focus, his attention, back to the Lord. And the quality of Jeremiah is that his focus, his passion, his life was not leaving his own mark but doing what the Lord told him to do, that the mark of the Lord would be left upon His people. In 627 B.C., Jeremiah was called. The young would-be priest heard the word of the Lord and he began his journey as the Lord's messenger, as the Lord's prophet. Verses 1-3 through in Jeremiah chapter 1 are the heading of this scroll, of this book. These three verses all together, if you look in, a, in the Hebrew Scriptures, some, some today, modern translations of the Hebrew, uh, the Jewish Bible might just say Jeremiah or the book of Jeremiah, but the original scroll simply began with this heading, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anatote in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, and king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. That's the heading. Okay, That's the introduction of the book, and it's an important introduction because it tells us exactly when Jeremiah lived. It tells us exactly when he prophesied. This prophet spoke across 40 years. He spoke during the lifetimes of five kings of Israel, the last five kings of Israel, a critical time in Israel's history. Now, he only mentions three kings in his introduction, and for good reason. He mentions King Josiah. This was when, when he was called. Early on in the reign of King Josiah, good King Josiah, the last great reformer and revivalist of Judah. We talked about last week, under Josiah, revival spread in the land of Judah. And Jerusalem and the high places were finally torn down and the places of pagan worship and idolatry and it all fell under King Josiah and the people returned their hearts to the Lord. And so at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, things looked really good. Things were very positive. They were going the right direction. And that's the kind of wagon you'd want, you'd want to hit your wagon to that star right there. Okay, King Josiah the Reformer, this is when I want to prophesy. It's a good time to be a prophet in Judah. Josiah was killed in battle in 609 B.C. One of the few mistakes that we see in Scripture Josiah making was that he goes to battle when he probably shouldn't have. He goes to battle against, I believe, the inclination of the Lord, and he's killed by a stray arrow in battle, 609 B.C., and it was downhill from there. The next king in line that Jeremiah doesn't even mention in the introduction is Jehoahaz, who lasted three months. And so he's unmentioned at all by Jeremiah in the entire book. You won't hear his name. The next king, Jehoiakim, came and he lasted 11 years before he was taken out. And then came Jehoiachin, who is also called Jeconiah, or later in the book of Jeremiah, God calls him Coniah. Why does God take the Je off? Because the Je is Yah, it's for Yahweh. And the Lord will not refer to Jeconiah with any resemblance of his own name in this man because his reign was so evil and he reigned three months. And in those three months, Jeconiah was so evil. Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, Coniah, same guy. He was so evil, he managed to get his entire genealogical line cursed from ever being able to sit on the throne. 
Listen to this. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 22, verse 30, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will sit, will, will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. From Jeconiah forward, God says, Every man of this line will be barred from the throne. Know who came at the end of that line? Bible students, do you know? A man named Joseph. Luke 3.23 says when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Joseph could not, even if raised up, even if given opportunity, could not himself sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Which means if Joseph had been Jesus' biological father, Jesus could not have sat on the throne in Jerusalem. But Joseph was not his biological father, was he? Mary would be the biological mother, the Spirit of God, his biological father. And so, God bypasses the line of Jeconiah, that Jesus can sit on the throne. Check this out, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Jacob was father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus is born. The by whom refers to Mary. It's in the feminine form. does not refer to Joseph. Jacob was the father of Joseph, it says, the husband of Mary. But, but we read in Luke 3.23 that Eli was the father of Joseph. Well, is it Jacob or is it Eli? Eli is Mary's dad, the father-in-law. Mary is the line... Mary of the tribe of Judah also is the line through whom Jesus comes and has every right, both legally and spiritually, to sit on the throne. And this is what God does. He bypasses the curse. I love that. So you have Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, or Coniah, and then the final king of Judah following him was Zedekiah, and Zedekiah would be the last, and Judah would fall. All of that to say, Jeremiah watched his beloved Judah go from revival to ruin. By the way, the big event around which Jeremiah prophesies in the book of Jeremiah is the fall of Jerusalem, 586 B.C. The destruction of the temple. We will finish Jeremiah and go right on into the small five-chapter book of Lamentations. Because in the Lamentations, Jeremiah continues to write his sorrow and his pain over watching his beloved country fall. And that's the timing of all this. So we'll hear a lot about that, a lot about what was going on in that time frame. Again, starting about 627 B.C., running down to about 586 B.C., and a little bit beyond that. So across those 40 years, this is the time of the prophet Jeremiah. Now there's a phrase you're going to hear again and again in this book. There are several phrases Jeremiah uses. I've already mentioned the one, Ah, Lord God. But there are other phrases that you're going to hear. One that he uses 51 times across this 52 chapter book. And it is the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord. In fact, 20% of all uses of that phrase, the Word of the Lord, in the Bible is used by Jeremiah. He speaks to it a lot, continuously. And I love that because Jeremiah keeps it simple. He keeps it very simple. His prophecies, similar to those of the prophet Amos, are more often called words or speeches than they are called prophecies. They are prophecies, but he prefers to refer to them as words or speeches, and they bear the same great weight of inspiration, but very simply put, Jeremiah would say, these are the words of the Lord. The words of the Lord, he will say, and then he speaks a prophecy. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of inspiration? I think about that often, sitting up here preaching. I would love to be able to tell you that every single word, every syllable uttered out of my mouth was the word of the Lord. Part of the reason why there are so many verses up behind me and I refer so much to different verses and try to let the Bible explain itself is because I don't want my words to get in the way. And they do. And you know they do. 
Right, Spence? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> My words will get in the way sometimes. And there are times, and I'm just being bl- brutally honest here with you. There are times I'm walking home going, why didn't I say that, you know? And there are other times I'm saying, I wish I had said that. And I'm praying, Lord, let my words be your words. I wish I could just say the words of the Lord. And to know with certainty that every word out of my mouth was His word and not mine. Wouldn't that be great? Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I can tell you with certainty that you're holding His word in your hands. You want the words of the Lord? You have them. Right before you in the Scriptures. And we know that the written word remains the truest test of the spoken word, which is why I tell you often, test everything you hear against the Word of God. But to actually have the words of God pouring out of your mouth is not an easy thing at all. And you Bible students know that. You look at the prophets. Were their lives easy? Far from it. To be called to speak the words of the Lord was often painful. Often difficult, often costs people friends and relationships and joy and, and, and it can be a very difficult thing. So Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Let me give you a few things that he's called this morning and that's the first one. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Perhaps you've heard that. Here's why. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 1. He says, Oh that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah 13, verse 16. He says, Give glory to the Lord your God before He brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusty mountains. And while you are hoping for light, He makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride. And my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. As I said, watch his kingdom go from revival to ruin. And go fast. I mean, from the death of Josiah on, it was a quick turnaround. The revival did not last long. As often is the case, revivals will come and people will say, oh, we finally brought the kingdom The kingdom finally has conquered the earth. And history shows us again and again and again that as marvelous as revivals are, the sin of man goes right down the tubes. And this is what happened in in Judah. But Jeremiah didn't only weep over the demise of his people. The weeping prophet has been called other names as well. Secondly, Jeremiah is called the lonely prophet. The lonely prophet. Forty years of ministry and Jeremiah never had a single convert. Not a single follower. He only would experience from his own people rejection and rebellion. That's the thanks that he gets. That's the payment for his prophecy. And Jeremiah had no professional support either. If we look at historically the prophets who were there around the time he was, Zephaniah and Haggai were contemporaries, but they were older. In fact, probably old men at the time of Jeremiah's youth. He starts off a young man, they're already old men, so they're not even in the same boat. Zephaniah is mentioned one time in his entire 52 chapter prophecy in Jeremiah's. Haggai is not mentioned at all. Another contemporary of Jeremiah was Ezekiel, who was alive, but he was prophesying from Babylon, so they didn't interact. And there was another, who was a boy about probably the same age of Jeremiah. A young man, but he was carted off probably at the age of 17, 18 years old to Babylon himself. Another prophet by the name of Daniel. And though these were all contemporaries, Zephaniah, Haggai, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, all contemporaries at least time-wise, alive at some point while Jeremiah was alive, these prophets didn't interact. They didn't have opportunity to support one another. In fact, the lonely prophet went to no prophecy conventions. (laughs) He had no pastor's conferences, no luncheons, no like-minded prophets to hang out with, to commiserate with, to hang in there with. 
One thing that's interesting to remember is that Jeremiah had an influence that he didn't even know he would have. That this young Daniel who was carted off to Babylon would himself some 70 years later be reading the book of Jeremiah and while reading the book of Jeremiah realize the 70 years of their captivity in Babylon was almost over. And so Daniel would drop to his knees and begin to pray. And in that prayer, we have Daniel chapter 9, the most important prophetic passage in the whole Hebrew Scriptures. Influenced by Jeremiah and by Daniel's study of this very book that we're about to read together. But there was a greater reason for the isolation of the lonely prophet. Skip over to Jeremiah chapter 16 for a moment. Jeremiah 16. Verse 1. Jeremiah writes, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. He doesn't get to have a wife. He doesn't get to get married. He has a command of the Lord, Jeremiah, no woman for you. Jeremiah, no wife. Don't go there. And no sons or daughters. I need you to remain isolated. Well, God, that doesn't seem fair. I wonder if Jeremiah thought that. He doesn't record that he did. It doesn't seem fair, Lord. And I thought as I read that, at least let him have a wife and kids. You know, he doesn't have any other outside support. His people reject him. The other prophets are all distant or off doing other things. Let him have a wife to stand with him. Some kids to say, Daddy, you're okay, even though they don't think so. (laughs) Nothing. You ever wish God would give you someone or something you don't have? You ever wish you could have a spouse or have children, and yet God seems to, at least by circumstances in your life, or perhaps directly, seems to have told you it's not going to happen? You're not going to have that? I want you to understand something especially when it comes to dreams unfulfilled, hopes that are held out there, and you say, but but I wish that I could, but why don't I, but how about if, and the Lord answers, no. Understand this. In Jeremiah's case, his isolation in terms of family and children was in reality a great protection against deep heartache and loss. Look at verse 3. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place and concerning their mothers who bear them and their fathers who beget them in this land, they will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine and their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. Jeremiah, I don't want that for you. Jeremiah, I will protect you against the heartache, against the pain, against the terror of watching that happen to your wife and to your children. Therefore, no marriage for you. You get it? We don't know all the heartache and the horror and the pain that God has protected us from simply by saying, no, you're not going to have that in your life. God knows where He'd allow certain things to happen, certain relationships to form, certain connections to take place, that those connections would ultimately bring us pain and heartache. And He says, no. I'd rather have you feel some loss right now, perhaps even some loneliness right now, than to feel the kind of pain you would feel were I to let you go forward your way. Remember what Isaiah the prophet said. Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways... Your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is the lonely prophet. But Jeremiah would say again and again, Ah, Lord God, nothing is too hard for thee. Jeremiah number three is also called the persecuted prophet. In fact, the persecution of Jeremiah is so bad, and we'll see it throughout his book, 
that some rabbis have even tried to say Jeremiah was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They've tried to make that connection. Now, it's not possible, because when you really look at Isaiah 53, it goes far beyond the horror that Jeremiah faced. He doesn't really make that cut. But as we'll see, Jeremiah was rejected. He was ridiculed. He was beaten. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into the stocks. He is called a laughing stock. <laughs> He's labeled a traitor, lowered into a muddy cistern, and finally he is forced against his will to go with a rebellious band of people to escape down into Egypt where God says, do not go there. Even as the captivity is happening, as the Babylonians are coming in and carting off people, a group will flee to Egypt. And God says, don't flee to Egypt. My will is for you to go into captivity, and I will take care of you there. Remarkably, but this band goes down into Egypt and they grab Jeremiah and they say, you're coming with us. And he says, I don't want to go. And they force him to go. And so Jeremiah will spend his last days prophesying to that rebellious group in Egypt against his will. I think about that and begin to look at all of these tragedies and terrors and problems and loneliness and weeping and persecution that happened to this prophet. And I say, Jeremiah, why don't you just give it all up? Just stop speaking the word of the Lord. You know why he didn't. Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9, he writes, If I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. You see, Jeremiah realized when the word of the Lord is given to you, you cannot contain it. When the word of the Lord is downloaded into your heart, you have to tell it because it is too big for someone to keep in. And so he had to speak the words of the Lord. But there's a greater reason I believe Jeremiah kept on speaking the words of the Lord. Number four, Jeremiah was called. Period. He was called. Yes, he was called the weeping prophet. Yes, we can call him the lonely prophet. Yes, we can call him the persecuted prophet. But greatest of all, Jeremiah is called, was called. Let's consider that. Look at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you, in the womb I knew you. Stop right there. When does life begin? Most Christians will answer that at conception. Jeremiah, the Lord actually, answers that before conception. Prior to conception. You want to really get into it, listen again. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. We are known by God before we are formed in the womb. Life doesn't begin at conception. It starts before Because in the heart of God, He knows this life is coming into the world. He has decided it. He has determined it before He begins the formation. And I think, you know, if if we could understand that, the abortion debate would be over. If we would accept that simple truth. What David writes, Psalm 139.13, You formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And according to Scripture, that's the deal for all people. You are here and alive today, not because your parents chose to have you, but because the Lord formed you. Because the Lord knew you and formed you in your mother's womb. But the calling of Jeremiah continues. Look at this. Verse 5, continuing on. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Well, then I, I said, he writes... Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. The word youth there is na'ar in the Hebrew, and it literally is anywhere a child from infancy to teen years. That's what na'ar refers to. Jeremiah was a young guy. He wasn't an old, gnarled prophet when he was called. We can guess, 17, 18, 19 years old perhaps? A young man in the line to go into the priesthood. His father, Hilkiah, was a priest. He would have been among the priests. That was the direction. But this priest is now going to be a prophet. This young man. And he says, I'm I'm a Na'ar. I'm a kid. And I love the Lord's response to that. Do not say, I'm a kid. 
Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now to anyone who would stand up and and say, I was here, God makes seven statements in this calling to Jeremiah. Recount them with me. Back in verse 5, he says, I formed you. Then he says, I knew you. Then he says, I consecrated you. He says, I have appointed you. There's four of them. In verse 6, Jeremiah complains. In verse 7, he says, I send you. He says, I command you. And then in verse 8, he says, I am with you. And what that tells us very simply, these have nothing to do with Jeremiah, but everything to do with God. Jeremiah's calling is not because of Jeremiah. It's because of God. Jeremiah's value is not because Jeremiah was intrinsically valuable. It's because God called him. And that's the deal. That's what makes a mark. That's what makes a person lasting is when they're called by God and recognize the calling. Not because they have something great in and of themselves. Don't even say, I'm a youth, God says. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're male or female or or rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're considered to be gifted by the world's standards or common. I really got nothing to offer. It doesn't matter if you're called. What Jeremiah was or was not is of no importance whatsoever. Make sure you note that in his calling. I formed you. I knew you. I consecrated you. I appointed you. I send you. I command you. I am with you. This is God's doing. It is not Jeremiah's doing. And Paul understood that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, in trying to set aright the Corinthian church, because they were real excited there, and they were beginning to break up into camps. We're the Apollos group. We're the Paul group. And Paul goes, what? He says, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 7. I've used this phrase a couple times recently. It's, it's become important to me. Ironside wrote, The instrument may be feeble, but it is upheld and used by an all-powerful hand. I'm a feeble instrument in a mighty hand. I'm a wimpy guy with a strong dad. I have nothing to offer but that which God offers through me. I'm called. I'm called. That's what makes my life valuable. That's what makes it worthwhile. That's what allows me to leave some kind of mark, not just on this world, but in eternity. And you know, bless her heart, the Beyonce's of the world, those who are famous and are known, then they can fool themselves into thinking their fame will last, but it won't. Unless they respond to the calling that comes from an eternal God. Now, the flip side of that is the common folk. You know, I was listening to her saying, I was here, I'm going to leave my mark. And I thought, what about all the people watching that video on YouTube at home going, I'll never leave a mark. I didn't have a dad who worked me out with the girls in the backyard until we became Destiny's child. And I didn't have the opportunities that she had. And I... I certainly don't have the voice on the national stage, the international stage that she has. I was here. Well, that's great for Beyonce, but I got nothing to offer. I'm just coming. Gang, the mark you leave, the life change that will last is only the one that is wrought by faith in Jesus Christ. No other call works. No other call is eternal. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Right? If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, or hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. The UN has World Humanitarian Day. And that's marvelous. And I I don't want to knock, please hear me, I don't want to knock people out serving others. Because it's important and it matters. But if you're only serving someone so that they can live one more day on this earth, the service is vague, it's void, it's, it's meaningless. If your service is just about making someone's life better for now, 
big deal. They're still going to die. But if your service through faith in Jesus Christ is to introduce one person to Jesus, you have seen one life saved for all eternity. How do you measure that? That is a calling worth having. That's the lasting legacy of Jeremiah. Verse 9, The Lord stretched out His hand and touched my mouth, He writes. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, and interestingly, to build and to plant. You're going to see a basic uh, twofold message in Jeremiah. Very simply broken down, the entire book of Jeremiah comes down to two messages from the Lord. I will rebuke and I will restore. I will rebuke to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. And I will restore, that is to build and to plant. If you are involved in construction at all, you understand this. Sometimes you have to tear down before you can build up. Sometimes something that's old and rotting and broken needs to be destroyed before it can be planted and rebuilt. There's a great spiritual truth in that. That the Lord says to pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow, and to build and to plant. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. There are spiritual forces. The reason why we are praying for the lost, the reason why we need to be praying for the lost is not because, well, we need to get them into a place where they are, you know, better people. As if we were better people because we're saved. Well, we are because God begins to change us. But we pray for the lost because there are fortresses that are rotting and and decaying that are holding them in place. And they must be destroyed. Not the lost person, but the fortress that's holding them back must be destroyed. The stronghold must be torn down. Paul says we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Sometimes you've got to tear something down before it can be restored. You should see old pictures of Barb and Rod's house. Look nothing like it looks right now. In fact, you should hear their stories about what was inside that house when they bought it. And how Les and, and others among them thought, are you guys serious? It was a crazy investment because it was a rotting, pathetic, old barn house. They, they couldn't even move into the house when they bought it. Did you know that? They had to sleep out in the barn while they rebuilt and restored. And the house that people see now when they turn that curve on Duck and Road, this beautiful Victorian house, was restored from junk. You gotta tear down sometimes before you can build up. And I ask you to think about that this morning. What in your life needs tearing down? What rotting building is still there, leaned up against your heart, that needs to be torn down and done away with so that you can be fully restored in the Lord Jesus? God says, I will rebuke, I will break down, but I will restore. You know, the heart of this entire prophecy of Jeremiah is restoration. Turn over to chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. And listen to the Father's heart. This is why He took Judah all the way down. Why He sent them into captivity. Why He did what He did. Why He rebuked and disciplined and broke up the fallow ground. Listen to this. Jeremiah 31, verse 1, At that time declares the Lord God, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be My people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest. 
the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you and you will be built, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. You will again plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. That's what the media calls the West Bank today. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. And and for there will be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. And we're going to talk about that more when we get to Jeremiah 31. It's not a prophecy of the return from Babylon. It is a prophecy of what God is going to do for Israel. It's a prophecy yet to come, my friends. Why? Because God is the great restorationist. Because God will restore. Yes, He will rebuke. But God would rather rebuke your life. God would rather tear down what is mighty in your life so that He can restore you for eternity than let you or me play some of the building games we play thinking that we can leave our mark on this world. He'd rather tear it down so He can build you up. Well, I can't wait to get to Jeremiah 31, but go back to Jeremiah chapter 1 quickly. And understand this, if you're feeling torn down, if you're feeling broken up, God is doing something right now. And His heart is to build you up to complete restoration. It's the way He works. Now, common folk, all of us here, Jeremiah is given, interestingly, two very common visions to seal his call. Not amazing, fantastic, flashy things, but very common. The first one is the vision of an almond branch. The almond branch. Verse 11, The word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Now, gang, this is common in Israel. And in fact, I even wonder, and I don't want to say one way or the other, but I even wonder if when we think of this as a great vision, if Jeremiah wasn't just sitting on a hillside and God says, What do you see, Jeremiah? An almond tree? That's what I I see. I see a branch of an almond tree. Now, perhaps God gave it to him in a vision. You know, maybe he was in a room somewhere in the dark praying, maybe as as this calling came. And he immediately got this picture in his mind, this common picture of an almond tree. But still, it was common. I see the rod of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, You have seen well. For I am watching over my word to perform it. You ever read things in the Bible and go, huh? What, what do the two have to do together? You know, I see the branch of an almond tree. That's right, I'm watching my word. Okay. No idea what you're talking about, Lord. Listen, there's more to this common vision than meets the eye. The Hebrew word for almond tree, you might want to know this, is shakade. Shakade, S-H-A-Q-E-D, if you want to just transliterate it. Shakade is almond tree. It comes from the Hebrew word for watch, which is shakad, S-H-A-Q-A-D. Because shakad, where he says, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word. You see, if we were Hebrew, we'd understand this. Jeremiah says, I see a shakade. And God says, that's right, and I am shakading my word. Oh, like the almond tree. But get this. This word means to watch. I'm watching over my word. Or more literally, I am wakeful to my word. I am awake with my word. The almond tree is called the shakade in Hebrew because the almond tree is the awake tree. That's why it's called that in the first place. It's the awake tree. It buds and it flowers and it bears fruit first every season in Israel. This is the first tree. And Cheryl and I saw that. We were on uh, on the mound at Shiloh. And we walked through as we were heading to the place where they believed the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle first stood and stood for 150 years in the land. An amazing place. As we were walking down to get there, we went through this grove of almond trees. And it was beautiful. Just These trees were, were just covered with these pink flowers. I didn't even know what they were at first. They were just beautiful trees. And I said, what, what kind of a tree is this? And, and our guide, Eitan, said, those are almond trees. Almond trees. The first ones to flower. 
The awake tree. They wake up and then you realize the rest of the trees are going to start to wake up. Bible students. Not only is the almond tree the one to offer the first fruits of the year, but is there another reference to an almond branch in Scripture that you can think of? Aaron. Aaron's rod. In the wilderness, the people began to argue and banter and complain against Moses and Aaron, against their right to lead. Who gave you the authority to lead us, they said. And so God said, Moses, I want you to have one leader from every tribe bring their rod. Bring their staff, their walking stick. It was a sign of authority for each tribe. And so each one brought it, indicating their leadership. And the Lord said through Moses, I'm going to have you put those down on the ground there inside the tabernacle before the Ark of the Covenant. You set those down and go out. And I'll determine who the real leader is here. The next day when they went in there, number 17, verse 8, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. <laughs> Which is a great story. Because they bring all the sticks out. you got 11 dead sticks and one blossoming rod. <laughs> Who do you think has the authority? Okay. The book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 4, tells us that rod was placed in the Ark of the Covenant and kept there. It says there was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded, budded almonds, gang, and the tables of the covenant. But think about this. Put the two together. A dead branch that buds to life. An almond branch, which is the first fruits of the land. What is this a picture of? I'm hearing the whisperings. Jesus. This is a picture of the Christ. In the common calling of Jeremiah. He just sees an almond branch. A common thing. But in that common calling is Jesus. A picture of the coming Christ. Is it any wonder that Jeremiah later would say in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, Jeremiah 33, 15, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Wow, the vision ain't so common after all, is it? To you and me, an almond tree would be a common tree, especially to Jeremiah and Israel. It's just a common tree. No big deal. Oh, it was a big deal. It reminds us of the first high priest, Aaron. It reminds us of the last and greatest high priest, Jesus Christ. The budding branch of the almond tree, picturing even His resurrection. But Jeremiah is given a second vision in this calling, and it's a vision of a boiling pot. Verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, What do you see? And he said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Again, something that would have been common in Israel. Jeremiah sitting there looking out and there's a woman out doing the washing or perhaps preparing dinner and there's a boiling pot. What do you see, Jeremiah? Pot. (laughs) Or... Again, perhaps he was in a place and he was in prayer and listening to the Lord. And he's given this vision. He sees this picture in his, in his spirit. But it's still just a pot. A boiling pot. A common vision. And the Lord said to me, verse 14, Out of the north the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. Just like that pot, something is about to overboil, Jeremiah For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come, and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all its walls round about, and against all the cities of Judah. And this boiling pot from the north speaks of Babylon. It's a direct prophecy of Babylon. Now you might say, well, on a map, Babylon is east. Yeah, but Babylon encompassed the countries all the way up above and north of Israel, and the route by which they would come in to conquer was from the north. And there would be a coalition, not only of Babylon, but of other nations siding with Babylon, who now would come against Jerusalem, who would set up their thrones, as it were, their authority to wipe out Jerusalem as they come down from the north, the vision of the boiling pot. And it would happen two decades from this 
calling. Twenty years later, Babylon would overflow and destroy Jerusalem. But understand this, the boiling pot, the thing which caused the pot to overboil was the anger of God. It was the wrath of the Lord. Verse 16, I will pronounce my judgments on them. Now you need to get this, them refers specifically to Judah. Alright? Them is not talking about the kingdoms and nations of the world coming down against Judah. The judgments God is proclaiming is against them, Judah. Why? Concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and have worshipped the work of their own hands. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. In other words, do not back down, Jeremiah. You stand up and speak my word. I am with you. You go forth and you say what I tell you to say, and you let the chips fall where they may. And this judgment is pronounced against Israel. But you need to note this. Yes, Jeremiah was called, but so was Israel. These are the called people. These are the chosen ones. Israel was called. And so are you. So am I. Like Israel, I have to ask the question, do I do this? Do you do what God is declaring judgment against? Do we forsake the Lord by offering sacrifices to other gods? Gods of pleasure. Gods of money. Gods of security. Gods of success. Do we, as the Lord will here judge Judah, do we worship the work of our hands over the true and living God? You see, we are not that far from idolatry in our culture. The entire American dream is idolatrous, my friends. If the purpose of it is the work of our hands and the money or the success that we can achieve, it's idolatry. And God judged Israel for it. This is simple mathematics. In answering this question, do I worship the work of my hands? Do I forsake the Lord by offering sacrifices to other gods? Simple mathematics. Add up the hours. And I'm asking myself here, am I giving more of myself moment by moment, day by day, my time, my energy, my effort, am I giving more of myself to myself or to my Savior? That's how you answer the question. Or as Les would say, Where do your feet go? Where do your feet lead you? What are you into? What is the purpose? What is the focus of your life? How are you spending your time? That will determine who your God is very clearly. And if that makes you as uncomfortable as it makes me, listen. The pot is going to boil over again. I think the fire is already lit. The anger of God. The pot will overboil. And you might think, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm saved by grace. Yeah, you may very well be. And the overboiling of the pot of God's wrath may not affect you if you belong to Jesus by faith in His grace, even if you mess up your life. But the next time the pot boils over, the judgment will not just be against Judah, it's going to be over the whole inhabited earth. Who will be lost because you were focused or I was focused on worldly things, on trying to leave a mark here instead of leaving a mark by the name of God? Who's going to be lost because I'm too busy with my success? Who's going to go to hell because, man, I just got too much going on in my life right now. I hate preaching this stuff because it is self-condemning. But if we are truly to stand here and hear the words of God that He spoke against His called people Judah, then my brothers and sisters, as called people, we got to have judgment start in the household of God. We need to look, each one of us, individually at ourselves and say, how am I living my life, Lord? Am I going to leave an eternal mark? 
or is all the work of my hands and all of my focus and all my business just wood, hay, and straw? Is it going to burn? Leaving nothing behind. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10 says, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. The prophet Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy, for He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So what do we do? Last week, I said, be at peace. Be at prayer. Be perceptive. Be prepared. But we have to add one more. Persevere. Be persevering. Be persevering. Verse 18, Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, and as a pillar of iron, and as walls of bronze against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah's calling. But brothers and sisters, it struck me this week as I read through these words, this is my calling. A common calling. I'm just a common guy. I'm not that gifted. I'm not that talented. I don't have that much. I'm not a name on the world stage. I never will be. Just a common guy. But my calling is to speak the words of the Lord and to persevere in this world. And my friends, it is your calling too. This is your calling if you would follow Jesus Christ. Who cares if I was here? Only the Lord God of all creation. He cares. It matters to Him that you're here. And if you belong to the Lord, you have a common calling. Think about this. He is the Lord who formed you. He is the Lord who knew you. He is the Lord who consecrates, appoints, sins, commands, and is with you. And He's calling you today, this morning. Will you answer Him with your life? Let's stand up together. I'm going to ask you to bow. And I'm going to do something a little different this morning. We always offer altar calls and, and invitations to respond to Jesus. And we will continue to do that. In fact, I'm going to do it right now. If you do not know the Lord, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you need to understand the words we speak here are absolute truth. The words of Scripture. And what happened in the fall of Judah is is proclaimed by Scripture to happen again, but on a worldwide scale. And God's love is so great that He would save anyone who simply, any common person who would simply call on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And so if you're in that place where you have never given your life to Jesus, there's no program, no rote way of going about it other than just claiming His Lordship, praying to Him, then before you leave here, don't go out that door without talking to me or one of our elders. People can point them out to you. And praying to receive Jesus. But I want to do something different this morning as we end. I have a little book here that I just picked up this year called The Valley of Vision. Um, I was introduced to it by a couple who go here to the bridge. It's a book of Puritan prayers. Very interesting, just prayers. And I'd like to read the prayer for the new year. O Lord, length of days does not profit me, except the days are passed in Thy presence, in Thy service to thy glory give me a grace that precedes and follows and guides and sustains and sanctifies and aids every hour that I might not be one moment apart from thee but may rely on thy spirit to supply every thought speak in every word direct every step prosper every work Build up every mote of faith and give me a desire to show forth thy praise, testify thy love, advance thy kingdom. 
I launch my bark on the unknown waters of this year with Thee, O Father, as my harbor. Thee, O Son, at my helm. Thee, O Holy Spirit, filling my sails. Guide me to heaven with my loins girt, my lamp burning, my ear open to Thy calls, my heart full of love, my soul free. Give me Thy grace to sanctify me, Thy comforts to cheer, Thy wisdom to teach, Thy right hand to guide, Thy counsel to instruct, Thy law to judge, Thy presence to stabilize, and may Thy fear be my awe, Thy triumphs my joy. Lord Jesus, may our lives be consumed, captivated, and controlled by your presence. And I pray, Lord, for the power of your Spirit to move in us as never before. I ask for your Holy Spirit to be seen in us, bringing all glory to the name of Jesus, and attracting and drawing lost people to find their salvation in you, Lord Jesus. Father, may we as a fellowship simply receive the blessing of your power and your presence this year as we seek to be builders in the kingdom. And we love you, Lord. And thank you for calling us. In Jesus' name.